save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Dr. Peter Cat of LionAid. Welcome back, Peter. Thank you, Ellie. Glad to be here. It's uh, great to have you back, and we've got quite the conversation for our listeners today, as a whole lot has been happening since our last conversation. Um, And folks, listeners, go back and look under the guest tab and look at the previous conversations with uh, Peter Cat, and that will lay a great foundation to what we're talking about today. And it's been a relatively short time from CITES COP17 at about this time last year and the decisions that have been rather blatantly flaunted since the beginning of this year. We seem to have moved conservation into a fully utilized model of product and economic benefits for us, even discussing wildness itself in dry terms of science that leave out the aesthetics of what wild is. Science certainly has an important role to play in conservation, no doubt about that, but the models have shifted toward production of species for marketability. That leads us into our first topic today, the rhino horn trade, which has made the headlines around the world. Just a few short months ago, we learned of South Africa's Department of Environmental Affairs decision at the bidding of a small group of pro-horn private rhino breeders to open up domestic trade in rhino horn in South Africa. And this, we need to just say here, CITES decision is rhino horn is still illegal to import anywhere else. So there is no legal trade anywhere else in rhino horn. Um, And if that decision alone wasn't enough of a shock, then came the news of an online rhino horn auction that just took place. So, Peter, let's start here. There's been headline after headline in articles about what happened prior to the auction, the auction itself, and now the silence from from South Africa and the breeders, the pro-trade breeders, let me be clear, post-auction. So, dig in. All right, Ellie, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back into history a little bit. And what we need to realize is that um, before 2009, um, rhino horn could be legally traded in South Africa nationally um, by those who had horn to, to sort of, you know, trade around or whatever. Now, the South African government decided that that, national horn trade had so many loopholes and 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 ways of trading you know sort of rhino horn nationally and then escaping that rhino horn into the illegal international markets that they closed it down let me just ask one thing where does the legal permitting of hunting a rhino for trophy fit in or should we say that because that really ended up, the whole Vietnam thing, really ended up being about rhino horn export, but it was exactly, under the guise exactly. of hunting trophy. But these, are, but these are two separate issues, okay? On the one hand, we had um, national trading of rhino horn before 2009, 
which was allowed in South Africa, and then got disallowed because, you know, there were so many um, irregularities and, you know, the national trade turned into an international illegal trade. And then on top of that, we had the rhino trophy hunting, which was exploited by various people in, in different countries, especially in places like Vietnam, because what they could do is they could come in and shoot a rhino dead and take the horn legally under CITES permits, international permits, and then, you know, escape with that horn to, to Vietnam or whatever. But that now, also implies culpabil- culpability in South Africa. Let's not pin it all on Asia. I mean, I know that, or, or Vietnam, because South Africa found a way, as you said, in these loopholes to make a use out of their rhino. Exactly. Now, rhino trophy hunting used to be the main means of gaining finance for the, the, the private rhino owners, the private rhino ranchers and things like that. Because no, no, no tourist wants to come to, a, let's say, a, a rhino ranch and see some, you know, 20 or 30 rhinos standing around in a field being fed and, you know, whatever. No. The main income for the private rhino owners, you know, around, you know, 2009, 2010, was always going to be the trophy hunting. But then that got changed because um, 2009, like I said, you know, the, the South African government said no more national rhino horn trade allowed, meaning no more leakage of that sort of legal national rhino horn going out into into the international illegal market. On top of that, no more um, the rhino... The quasi-hunting hunting. was also shut, somewhat shut down. The hunting, the hunting was, was sort of legal, sort of illegal. Um, you know, hunters came from the U.S., hunters came from Vietnam. All those that came from Vietnam were definitely, you know, trying to make advantage of a loophole in CITES. Now, CITES also says that you are not allowed to then commercially trade that hunting permit and that hunting trophy for your commercial purposes. Right. Now, this was all ignored. I mean, you know, CITES has all these rules and, you know, this and that and the other thing. But what happened is that the various um, exploiters of the trophy hunting business got well into this and they decided, okay, now what we're going to do is we're just going to take advantage of this loophole. We're going to shoot a rhino for very little money because the horn is worth, you know, five times more, export the horn under a CITES permit, and then we can sell it out. Now, what I want to come back to is that the national trade, the internal national trade was banned in 2009. Because the South African government said there were too many, you know, irregularities. Then what happened is that, um, you know, this rhino horn trade, the national trade, got resurrected via various uh, lawsuits and things like that. And is now, in 2017, it is now again legal to trade rhino horn nationally in South Africa. Okay, let's back up one little second because right. we've we've sort of thrown together in the same bucket 
all the private rhino breeders. We all know wild rhino and is one issue, and then we have the rhino horn breeders. And there are two groups of private rhino horn breeders, those who are truly interested in the conservation and um, viability of the species and do not allow hunting, have small groups of rhino, three to five, and um, that how expensive it, it is in this poaching um, horizon to secure these rhino, let alone the wild rhino, let's say in the Kruger or elsewhere across Africa. And then we have the rhino farmers like the small group that fought in court to change the South African DEA ruling. And that's sort of what the crux of what we're getting to. It's a small group of private breeders who are wealthy and want to wanted to resurrect to get rid of, to get the cash, C-A-S-H, and get rid of their cash, C-A-C-H-E, of rhino horn, because millions of dollars were sitting in vaults across South Africa. So doesn't that amount of money come into play a little bit in terms of the South African government's decision to hopefully maybe bail out its conservation woes, underfunded, underbudgeted, and insecurity, and perhaps, you know, restock some of the the bank accounts with cash and get rid of some of the security required to secure the dehorned rhino of the rhino breeders that did dehorning projects and had large caches of rhino horn. Supposedly, that was the thing, okay? Now, what the, the, the big rhino horn breeders or rhino, you know, owners were going to do was they said, and they convincingly said to a lot of people who believed them that what they were going to do is they were going to sell their rhino horns, okay, which they would harvest from their live rhinos, um, and, and the rhino horn would grow back and they could reharvest it again and then flood the market. Now, listen carefully to that. Flood the market in an attempt, they said, and not only an attempt, but in, in, in a means of undercutting the poachers and so therefore to make the poachers irrelevant. Because now there was going to be a trade in rhino horn that would undercut the poachers and supply all the demand in places like Vietnam, China, Laos, wherever. And that's another this is question. Where, you know, where is the demand and what is the demand for? And then that well, also the just gets into, you know, black market and market economics. There's, it, it kind of assumes yeah. it's a single commodity market. The private rhino owners with all these horns sitting, you know, you must imagine, you know, you got these private rhino owners. There's there's one particular man who has 1,500 rhinos or whatever. Um, and they are banking these horns in their safes and all that kind of stuff. And they want to get rid of them. They want to sell them because they are commercial businessmen. Now, what they wanted to do is to sell their horns and first they said, we're going to undercut the poachers. And by flooding the market, they meant the legal market or they thought they would also um, 
include in this sort of unclear idea of the black market? No, no, no. What they wanted to do was to take the whole market, right? They, they said that they wanted to flood the entire market with legal horn and cheap horn to undercut the poachers. Okay. Now, this was always going to be a nonsense, right? Because um, a poacher these days, and, you know, we're talking right now, 2017, a poacher is paid probably about 100 to $200 per kilo of rhino horn. Max. That means, at, at that means you know, these poachers, these poachers go out and they shoot a rhino dead in Kruger or in various other places, and they get, for the poacher, they get one or $200 per, per kilo of horn. Not, now, even rhino, necessarily you know, has, per, not even necessarily per kilo. They'll get maybe one or 200 bucks just to... To take the risk and and just to shoot the rhino and get the horn out. Right. So a a dealer, uh, you know, a legal person who has rhino horn sitting in a safe can never, ever, ever undercut a poacher. This is guaranteed. But this was something that Because the the poacher, let's just connect the dot here. The poacher will never see the money from the, the commercial dealer in rhino horn. So that leaves the poacher who is a person of the local community or nearby um, who is, has, has everything, nothing to lose. And, but that person will never see any of the benefits from a private source of rhino horn trade. No, not at all. Okay. But you see what the private rhino horn owners were betting on is that, um, you know, there's this fantastical figure of about, this was spread by, by, by the media and, you know, we don't know where this came from. But anyway, what a lot of people say is that a kilo of rhino horn is worth $65,000. Now, any rhino, any private rhino horn owner, you know, thought that, okay, look, I've got, I've got a, a bunch of horns in my safe. And uh, let me add up, you know, all my kilos and multiply them by 65,000. And that means I'm a multi, multi-millionaire. Hang on a second. You do the math and you flood the market to bring the rhino horn price down so that anybody can afford it and hopefully somehow provide an alternative to the poacher so that he doesn't feel the need to go in and kill the rhino for his hundred bucks. That puts us into a, a very gray area that the math wasn't fully worked out. It was never worked out. It was never worked out. This was never going to be happening because they also said, what we're going to do is we're going to benefit rhino conservation by preventing poachers, by undercutting the poachers. You see where I'm going? Undercutting the poachers means that they would have to sell their horns for about 100 to $200 per kilo. And it's not even they the poacher. And it's really not even the poacher who's the problem. It's the international crime cartels who are running Absolutely. this show. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the what what happened was that, you know, the big private rhino horn owner said, "We're going to undercut the poachers." But then all of a sudden, right? Now that um, the national sales of rhino horn in South Africa are again allowed, 
after various court cases. What the, 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 the rhino owners said is that, okay, we're going to go for the highest bidder. So gone was this whole concept of, you know, we're going to save rhinos by undercutting the poachers. No, they wanted the maximum amount of money for their horns. And the recent sale, internet sale, of rhino horns apparently was a tremendous flaw. And, you know, that's what we want to get into next. And right now we do have to cut away to a break. So please do check out um, our Wild World and Wild Eyes Foundation on Facebook and Peter Katz page and Lion Aid. And there's a lot of interesting information there and links to get our listeners up to speed on all that's been happening. So we're going to step away for a quick break and we'll come back and talk about this recent online auction and what seems to have happened or in this event. So stick with us and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Dr. Peter Cat of LionAid. Once again, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Our Wild World, Wild Eyes Foundation, and Peter Cat and LionAid. And on the web, there is a whole lot of information um, that we covered on this program previously uh, prior to um, 
CITES, during CITES, right after CITES, and then when the South African government decided to close the loopholes and make rhino horn trade legal nationally, and all the questions that arose from that. And then, as we started out in the beginning, the announcement of this rhino horn auction by um, pro-trade breeders. And once again, I do want to remind our listeners, not all private rhino breeders are pro-trade horn. Uh, are pro-trade in rhino horn. In fact, many of them are still anti-trade, and they've been very vociferous in stating why um, a legal trade in rhino horn will not help save the species in the wild. So what we're talking about is a captive population and making money and utilizing for-profit an endangered species. So let's, let's pick up where we left off. The announcement of the online auction by a particular rhino breeder by the name of John Hume, and um, this is not news, his name is all over everywhere, and he's very quiet now since the um, post-auction. So let's let's pick it up there, Peter. All right. Um, John Hume um, played a very, very good game. I mean, we must give him credit because, you know, he wanted to sell a product and he did everything that he could um, in various different and very careful ways um, to do so. In other words, he was a proponent of selling rhino horn on the international market. Now, on the international market, he was defeated because of, you know, the CITES meeting in 2016 that voted down any sort of international trade in rhino horns. Undaunted, Hume then went to the national market in South Africa and said, um, look, the, the, the ban that was put in place in 2009 to sell rhino horns nationally is um, illegal, unconstitutional, whatever, whatever, and he won. He won in the courts. So let's, now, let's, let's just reiterate. So a national, the, the lifting of the national, South African national ban, means you can sell rhino horn within South Africa. It is still illegal. You can sell it, it within South Africa, and we'll get into this, for personal use and all the information that led up to the permits for this. It is still illegal on the international market to trade in rhino horn. Yes, exactly. So basically, if you buy, um, let's say, a horn from John Hume on the national market in South Africa, and then you try to export that same horn, you are engaging in an, a, in an illegal activity, and you will be arrested and you will be put in jail, hopefully. Hopefully. Now, Hopefully. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a small guy, but you don't seem to be able to yeah. do that to the big guys. Yeah. Now, what John Hume did is he, unfortunately, um, went for this national sale thinking, thinking that there would be a national market in rhino horn in South Africa. Meaning a demand. A demand. For personal in use Africa. in South Africa. A, a national demand. What is now, per, let's, let's hang on a second. What is the personal use of rhino horn in South Africa? What do people in South Africa use it for? 
Zero. Okay. A doorstop. You know, um, maybe some sort of hood ornament on their car or something. But, you know, basically nothing. South Africa has no demand for rhino horn internally. Okay. So what John Hume did is, yes, he won his legal battle and it cost him a lot of money and lawyer fees and this and that and the other thing. Um, he won his right to be able to sell rhino horns internally in South Africa. So he engaged in this auction to be able to sell them. And now, this auction was held online and it yep. was translated into two languages, Vietnamese and uh, Chinese, Cantonese and Mandarin. So um, my guess is that there must be a large population of these Asians and these language speakers within South Africa, and he was hoping to sell it to them? Exactly. Exactly. And what he was hoping for was that the, the um, legislation or, or the, 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 you know, the, the sort of decision passed down by the court would allow South African citizens and also South African residents, they could engage in this auction to buy the horns. Okay. And that is why that, that you know, the, the whole site was translated into these various languages. Because what Hume was banking on, and I mean banking, um, was that there would be a lot of buyers um, in South Africa, either South African citizens or South African residents, who would then bid on these rhino horns. Now... He was very sadly disappointed. Unfortunately, we do not know, and you know, this is this is now what um, almost uh, ten days, twelve days, whatever after the auction. We still do not know from the auctioneers, or from John Hume, or from the South African government, how many horns were sold and what the prices were. And now, to whom we, they were sold, too. Well, we're not interested in, in you know, that that is privacy information that, you know, cannot be disclosed. Okay. You cannot disclose, you know, who the sellers or the buyers are, right? Okay. Um, sorry, the buyers. But we should be able to have some sort of information from the auctioneer and from John Hume and from the South African government who are monitoring this as to how many horns were sold and what the prices of those horns were. So, this is not um, from also uh, what is in the news, and many articles lead to this, that as a result of the rather non-event, we don't know what's been sold, that um, Mr. Hume shifted blame for this lack of interest to the Department of Environmental Affairs, and they're messing about with uh, giving him the permit at a very late notice, I think the morning of the auction. So a lot of brouhaha and falderall and shenanigans and legal maneuverings went on to create this online auction. 
it, the world was on edge, at least everybody in rhino conservation was on the edge of their seats waiting to see what would happen if we would be proven right or proven wrong. And meanwhile, folks, all this time, wild rhino are still being poached, along with rhino on some private farms. So it has not made a dent to date in the, the rhino poaching statistics and anti-poaching efforts and international law enforcement has still had to scale up. Um, and we don't have any information. There's no transparency and there's no accountability so far to date of what happened at this first um, world-breaking event. And now we hear there is a second rhino horn auction on the line coming up in another month or two. No, that's exactly right. But um, I think that, you know, what Hume overestimated was the, like I said before, was the national market. He, via his advisors or whatever, whatever, you know, he, he thought that he could sell, uh, I think he was offering, you know, 200 and something rhino horns and, you know, God knows how many kilos of rhino horn that would represent. Um, and another was, point we really didn't cover is in this auction, it ended up being only his horns that were for sale. Yes, exactly. Those were only his horns, and I was coming to that, right? Now, Hume, um, perhaps authorized by, you know, other private rhino horn owners or whatever, was going to do all the kind of, you know, legal stuff and was going to get the stuff through. And then as a reward, he was going to be only, you know, selling his horns. Hume said that once he embarked on this auction, that was going to be, you know, in his estimation, fantastically successful, um, everybody else who had rhino horns in South Africa could join in. Now, they all had to have permits. Hume had a permit, and like you said, you know, in the, in the couple of minutes ago, he had to struggle to get that permit from the the um, South African Department of Environmental Affairs. But once he got it, you know, that was supposed to be a watershed for everybody who owns private, who privately owns rhino horns to be able to engage in um, rhino horn sales. Now, Hume always wanted to keep those horn sales, this one that, that failed, and the next one, you know, we'll see what happens. But he always wanted to keep that within his own sort of um, little remit. Right. In other words, only his horns. In some ways, All it makes sense. Private- In some ways, it makes sense because it's kind of trackable. I mean, not that rhino horn trade is uh, that I'm a proponent of it, but the grand experiment has happened, and so far, the results. Well, you seem- call it grand. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some ways, it it is a grand experiment. It's a shock. I'm not saying grand is a good thing, but it it was an experiment, and it kind of remains to be seen what happened and what will happen but maybe this is a time to segue into a um, comparative line about opening markets on trade in endangered species uh, with lions so you and I have talked a lot previously 
about lions, and it's CITES uh, COP17. They did not uplist the lion to Appendix 1. It's still Appendix 2. And they went further in South Africa to allow a legal trade, a legal lion bone trade of captive lions. So private breeders, once again, we've got private breeders of lions now that are usually held aside for hunters. This is following... Are you, are you, listeners, are you picking up the uh, similar clues here and cues between private breeding of rhinos and lions and um, lions bred for the bullet? We've had a lot of discussion on that. And now, not just for the trophy of whoever wants to go in and kill a lion in a, at a captive farm, breeding farm, but now what has happened as a result of this legalized lion bone trade? Has it pushed the killing of lions and wild lions over the top? Well, I think, you know, there's, like you said, you know, there, there are some parallels to be drawn between the, the, the sort of um, private rhino ownership and sale of products of rhinos. And then also, you know, the private lion ownership and the, and the sale of, of, of lion products. Now, what happened um, to completely undermine the lion breeding industry in South Africa is that um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service early last year said that they would no longer allow the import of captive bred lion trophies because those trophies did not benefit the conservation of lions. That's a big thing. You know, that was a huge thing. That was a huge thing. Because what happened is that by making that announcement that they would not allow the import of those trophies, that destroyed 60% of South Africa's lion breeding profits in terms of trophy hunting. Wow. From one second to the next, South African lion breeders were no longer going to receive 60% of their profits from, you know, the U.S. hunters who came there. Yeah, they could, they could still earn some, some money from, let's say, hunters from, from Czechoslovakia or, or Germany or Spain or whatever, but 60% of their profits were gone. The other thing that is happening with these lion breeders is that they're still, they're still trying to collect money from cub petting and lion walking. You know, as these lions are growing up in their breeding facilities, they're still trying to collect some money from every stage of that lion. It's expensive to keep a lion to the age of where it can yeah. be hunted. So, And we've had a lot of discussions on this, all the spinoff um, businesses associated with lion breeding. As Peter just said, the cub petting, the volunteerism that you're helping orphans, and then you know, the lion safari parks, and then off on a side, the number of people that have been killed, uh, visitors to these lion parks, because of these lions are not wild, and they have a very different... Um, pedigree of how they were raised and uh, the lion breeders are still trying to recoup their cost of keeping and their expectations that the lion bone trade would make up for the loss of this 60%. So help us here, Peter. Well, I think, you know, let's, let's go back to the cost issue. 
okay? Um, I would figure, um, you know, I've, I've, I've got a dog um, in, in my house, and um, I would figure that that dog, you know, in terms of food, this, that, the other thing, would probably cost me, veterinary bills, would probably cost me about $1,000 a year to keep that dog. Now, it's a small dog. Now, let's multiply that small dog into a big lion. How much would it cost to maintain a lion in terms of food, in terms of, you know, being maintained in a cage, in veterinary fees, whatever? You know, you're talking lots and lots of money per lion. And these breeders don't just keep one lion. They keep maybe 30, 40, 50. So the costs are incredible for these people. And there, and I do want to interject that there are rules in South Africa that they can't just, um, they have to maintain the lion in health um, for X amount of years until it is of the right age, has a mane, an adult, to be killed. I, I, I presume they probably kill some cubs as well because when you go to the big hunting safari conventions, they have mounted uh, specimens, taxidermied specimens of entire prides, including cubs. So we've got this whole, once again, utilizing market off a species that is tanking. Let's let's segue just for a minute. Well, actually, what we need to do is take a break here, and then uh, we're going to come back and talk some more about what's going on in the world of lions. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie with my guest, Dr. Peter Cat, And we've had quite an interesting conversation so far today. And the 
point that ties together is the breeding and marketability of wild species that are endangered and facing crises across the world where they live in their range states, home, home areas, and the decrease of the wild populations. And it sort of is an, an, an argument or a conversation about is utilizing and farming on a larger scale of rhino and lion going to help the wild population? So we left off our last section with um, the captive breeding of lions and how uh, that was allowed in, at the last CITES to, um, as Peter said, rescue the lion breeders. Let's Let's pick this up and carry this through and then... What I want to spend most of our time on in this section is wild lions. What's happening with wild lions? So let's start here with the captive breeding and what it's doing and and how that's working out. Well, captive breeding by definition... Or captive breeding, it's selling for the, the lion bone trade. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, captive breeding by definition is um, breeding an animal in captivity for your personal profit. Because, you know, captive breeding, um, especially of predators, is not going to be any sort of conservation benefit. And even, even the captive breeders in South Africa of lions have admitted that what they're doing is nothing to do with conservation. Some captive breeding, like by zoos and that, and reintroduction of species, has been successful. But that's not what we're talking about here. Lions, captive bred lions, are not reintroduced into the wild. And that's, Never. that's the big deal with this. There's no place for them to go. Never introduced into the wild, cannot be introduced into the wild after having been captive bred in either private facilities like in South Africa or in zoos all over the world. You cannot return a captive bred lion into the wild. But anyway, um, the captive breeders in South Africa thought that they could breed these lions for a profit. You know, we discussed about, um, you know, this, this cub petting, um, lion walking, um, sending little lions to weddings, you know, to be having photographed with the bride, this, that, the other thing. And then eventually the trophy hunting. Now, they are being undercut all the time by international regulations that will not allow any such further imports of their products into um, the United States, into various other countries. So... The captive breeders of lions are now being sort of hedged in by all these various regulations that prevent the the um, the use or the export or even you know the sort of national use of their products through you know having these cub petting and, and, Basically, and volunteerism and whatever. Right? The world is spoken up, and we can mention Cecil here and the recent killing of Zanda, his son, and that the world is saying. We're not interested in importing dead lions. Exactly. And so what is happening is that these captive lion breeders in South Africa are getting hedged in more and more in terms of how to be able to turn those animals that they have in their cages into profits. Now, the one thing that they still have remaining and the one thing that is still allowed and in fact promoted by the South African government is the sale of lion bones. Now, in um, So tell us what lion bones are for. Help our listeners here. Why Lion, bones, I- lion bones are uh, a completely useless substitute 
Um, and, you know, this gets into, you know, a whole big discussion about Chinese traditional medicine, whatever, whatever. It used to be tiger bones that, that were important. But because the Chinese traditional medicine practitioners were convinced that you could substitute lion bones for tiger bones, now all of a sudden lion bones are important. And other forces um, were at play as well. They, they started farming tigers, and as we mentioned before, farmed wildlife to the medicinal user or the status seeker does not have the same spiritual chi imbued in it. It's not wild. And that is, a, that is a really key point when we're talking about captive breeding of wild species for marketability such as rhino horn or lion. So they've substituted lion bones for tiger. I don't think they're being sold as lion bones to the end user. I think they're just being sold and marketed as tiger bones or big cat bone. Exactly. And I think that, that um, you know, what, where CITES made the huge mistake in 2016 is that they said, look, we will allow a trade, an international trade in lion bones from captive-bred anim- captive animals. Now, I would, I would challenge anybody, any customs agent, any CITES um, official to be able to tell me what the difference is, putting them on the table in front of me, between a wild lion bone and a captive lion bone, right? Exactly. It is impossible. So what, what, what CITES did is they allowed a trade in captive bred lion bones that is going to be so easily invaded and laundered, you know, by the, the, um, the wild lion bone trade. Now, this is a big problem, and hopefully, you know, South Africa, <laughs> hopefully, um, will um, recover some sort of sense and stop all this, you know, captive breeding of, of lions for their products. And it's not just South Africa. I'd say this is a turning point, a shift, a paradigm for what humans want to be and how we're going to benefit from the wild is it always going to be a monetary unit benefit that benefits just one species us without really the consideration of how we need to live on a planet with functioning ecosystems of which these apex or megafauna are a large part in keeping so let's let's move on and our listeners can go back to a lot of our previous episodes about the canned breeding industry. So rather than reiterate a lot that here, and we can talk about it further, Peter, in uh, future episodes. But let's talk about what's happening with wild lions, that the data that we're operating from is a bit outdated. No, you're right. I mean, um Look, a lot of people say, you know, um, uh, say to me, how, how can you maintain your optimism, you know, as somebody who is, who is trying to save lions, how can you maintain your optimism in terms of, you know, waking up every day and going back to work? Um, and it is very dire and it is very grim. Um, a lot of organizations um, say that there are between 
what, uh, 20,000, 30,000 lions left in Africa. Um, but, you know, what we're saying as, as our organization, Lion Aid, you know, and we actually have some very, very good information coming from people working on the ground, is that it's much, much, much less than that. You know, years ago, we said, for example, that the, the, the IUCN and various organizations said that there were over, well over a thousand, maybe 2,000 lions left in Angola. Now, we always doubted that because we knew on, you know, the, the situation in the ground in Angola and we knew that, the, you know, the, the sort of miserable situation that all wildlife lives in in Angola. Um, and we said, no, 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 there, there, no way are there this number of lions left in, in Angola. Now, recently, um, there was a ground survey of lions in Angola and instead of finding what was broadcast by various NGOs and, and um, the media and the IUCN and WWF as being a population of maybe up to 2,000 lions in Angola was actually, now get this, actually when it was counted, it came down to maybe 10 to 30 lions left. Wow. So instead of 2,000, now we got, what, 10 to 30? Now, this is the sort of situation that we are in, um, unfortunately, in Africa in terms of lion populations. We do not know. We still do not know how many lions are left in Africa. So if you, kind of, if, if you kind of extrapolate this that we've been saying um, for about, five to eight years now there's 23,000 down from 450,000 10 years ago and now it's eight years on and we still know wild lions are being trophy hunted in those countries that do it Cecil and Zonda and then the lion breeding which is a separate population they're not counted in the wild lions that this data had to have changed so what we're trying to understand is and what you've told us previously in other episodes is how difficult it is to count lion populations and that from your information that there are within Africa three viable genetic populations the South African the East African and the West African lion and then there's the gear um, in Asia uh, India excuse me the gear lions but they're a subspecies so when we put all this together and we count time it's impossible to maintain that 23,000 number. No, forget about 23,000. You know, right. what we're dealing with now is maybe 14,000. Okay. okay. Because wherever we go, we find and we actually count lions on the ground rather than these optimistic predictions. Wherever we go and we actually count the lions, we find that there are less and less and less compared to the, you know, the, the sort of official numbers. Let's operate at 14,000 lions in Africa, right? Right. That is something that I can support in terms of a number and that other organizations should also support. Now, given that very, very low number of, of lions in Africa, what we need to do is we need to have some really, really good programs right now, tomorrow, next week, in the short term, to ensure that this species survives. 
Now, what we can do is, first of all, we have to we have to make sure that the habitats that the lions still occupy are going to be protected for lions. In other words, no more should we accept that national parks in Kenya, Tanzania, Cameroon, um, uh, Mozambique, wherever, are invaded by cattle. This is a common feature all over Africa, cattle invasions into national parks. Forget it. Stop that. And following cattle are people. And following I mean, cattle, we're, we're not even addressing the human population explosion that leads yeah. to the cattle population explosion. But let's continue with this, you know, protection of the national parks. This is key. This is key. Let's have some areas in Africa that are actually protected for lions. So we can take this small number of 14,000, stabilize that, and let it grow a little bit. What we need is a will. Political a will. A political will and a commitment by the African governments and each, e- even by the international you know, community to say, we are going to conserve national parks in Africa for the indigenous and biodiverse fauna. Not only lions, but a lot of other animals as well. And, and, and on about that, engage the local communities who have lived with lions forever and their knowledge and re-engage that relationship of coexistence? Well, the local communities, you know, let's put them aside for a second. and let's Just for conversation's sake. We're not talking about putting them aside out of conservation. No, no, no. Okay. But let's put the, 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 the local communities aside in terms of saying where the big priorities are in terms of conserving lines, and that is in the nationally protected areas. The communities, once those lines are conserved in the nationally protected areas and well conserved, the communities can then come in and they can set up their, you know, their, their community conservation programs. Their we need all that to happen now in such a way that includes living with lions. Living with lions is very, very difficult. It can be done. It can be done. But the initial priority should not be in areas where, line come, where, where lines come into contact with humans okay. and, and cattle. Okay. The initial priority should be where lines are left alone in an area that is protected from the, for them. In other words, the national parks, where they have nat- natural prey, natural environments, natural you know, settings and, and, and habitats. Preserve them there first. Or do a joint program, preserve them in the national parks, and then also, at the same time, ensure that they are not being killed by human-wildlife conflict in, in, the, in the surrounding areas around the national parks. Well, I'd say at this point in time, both are critically important. And Very, if we can absolutely. engage the donor community and the NGOs that are doing this work and have been doing it for a very long time, um, the silverbacks of the conservation community that are working and addressing these issues. It is a two-pronged uh, approach. We have, we have to work with the communities and we have to protect the landscape. Conservation has taken, as we started out, quite a few leaps backward um, from, let's say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s where we secured the habitat. 
now once again with um, overpopulation of people, uh, cattle incursions, which is led to water. I mean, there is a whole lot that we could talk about that we just don't have time to um, today. To We have to do everything on all sides of all coins to address a declining population of wild lions. This includes people, this includes the donor community, it includes science, it includes research, and it includes projects and alternatives and can't depend on, like with the rhino horn trade, on a lion bone trade to help conservation of wild lions. I think that that what we need to realize is that, you know, we have for far too long relied on outdated formulas to conserve wildlife. As you said, human populations are growing. Um, You know, landscapes are changing. We've got, you know, hurricanes and climate change and all that kind of stuff happening all over the place. What we need to do is to be flexible, adaptable, and what we need is to have really good and adaptable ideas to conserve lion, lion populations, conserve elephant populations, rhino populations in Africa. The old formulas that might still attract a lot of donor funds are not the ones that are going to work properly in terms of conserving um, in the future, and I mean by the future, I mean tomorrow, um, populations you know, in Africa. It, it, it requires, it requires a, a whole new mindset and it requires a whole new um, imagination, if you will, to um, convince people that this is the way to go. And basically what it all comes down to is land. How much land is going to be available? And I mean, how much land for the wild are African governments and, and, and African people willing to set aside to maintain their wildlife heritage and I'd the say global that's, heritage? You know, I'd, I, that's an excellent point, and I'd say it's true for every country on the planet. And it yeah. goes back to E.O. Wilson's um, idea of setting aside half the earth for wildness, and that doesn't mean a straight line. It just It's a paradigm shift that we're living in, and we humans have to decide what kind of a planet we want to live on. And um, I think at that point, there's we have to stop today, so maybe we can have another conversation in the future. But hopefully we've given our listeners some good information and something to think about. And remember that whatever you do to make a difference toward the future and to protect and conserve in your own backyard and in the wild places far away from you so that we continue having these magnificent species that live on earth into the future so thank you peter thank you and um let's talk again real soon because you and i can go on for a long time and i think there's a lot more we could talk about even on these two particular subjects especially as both continue forward in a very different world so that's it for today check our facebook pages peter dr peter cat lion aid our wild world and wild eyes foundation and stay up on the news so meanwhile go out and participate in our wild world thank you again for joining us this week 
Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.